Encore, Denarius, encore. Oh, man, I'm really sad that that's the last night we're going to do that, but uh, that's just real fun, isn't it? I can't get no satisfaction. Just before we get going, maybe as a quick devotional thought, I came across an article this week that uh, will hopefully prick your consciences in a helpful way. The source is the Babylon Bee. Hey, that's a credible source. And uh, the title of the article was this. It says, Church Visitor Boldly Sits in Front Pew. Shocking those in attendance at First Baptist Church of Wakefield Sunday, first-time church visitor Mark Nelson shook hands with the greeters, grabbed a cup of coffee, and waltzed right on up to sit in the middle of the front pew on the right side of the sanctuary, sources confirmed Monday. The pew has reportedly not been utilized in the entirety of the church's 58-year existence. (laughs) People have no shame anymore. Longtime church member Ruth Netter was overheard whispering to her grandson near the back of the church. In my day, you had to work yourself up to the front pew status, and I'm not even there yet. I know my place. Netter attempted to stare Nelson down with a judgmental look to the back of his head throughout the service, but the audacious visitor continued to sit up front, enjoying the proceedings for the duration of the service. Sources also confirmed that Nelson laughed loudly at the pastor's humorous illustrations and even offered a hearty amen as if he owned the place. (laughs) May the Lord increase their tribe, right? (laughs) Uh, Dallas and Sarah, you're very brave to sit up here this morning or this evening. Well, on a serious note, uh, I know a guy who was extremely strong. He was very athletic, very muscular. He was a leader among leaders. The whole town looked up to him. He was wise beyond his years. They looked to his wisdom as a source of guidance. He was good looking, very nice hair, a ladies' man. And uh, this was all brought to an end by sexual sin in his life. Now here tonight, I wanna just point this person out. Um, Gonna ask him to stand up and come forward. No, just kidding. Open your Bibles to Judges chapter 14. Judges chapter 14, we see the life of the man Samson. And Samson was all of these things. He was extremely strong. He was extremely athletic, I think we could say. He was a leader. He was a judge of the nation of Israel, wise beyond his years, and he did have nice flowing hair, actually, as well. Uh, But as I mentioned, Samson's life was brought, actually physically, to an end, not to mention destroyed his reputation, his position, his status. It was all brought crashing down by sexual sin. And just to point this out a little bit, Judges chapter 14, starting in verse 1, Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. And stop right there. Though God had not expressly uh, forbade marrying from the Philistine tribe, they nonetheless did not believe in the one true God. They did not believe in Yahweh. And so this is a bad idea from the get-go. And his parents, if you continue to read, tried to caution him against this. He persists anyways and demands that he marries her. And so he marries her. And sadly, at the end of chapter 14, it says, Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his friend. And I think what's probably going on here is that the the woman's dad did not want her to marry Samson, and so she gave him to his friend. And so Samson pretty much freaks out in chapter 15, and uh, he catches 300 foxes. He lights their tails on fire to run through and burn everything up. He was strong. He was fast. He's kind of like, you know, the macho man in the Bible. But once again, as you continue to read through this, look at chapter 16, verse 1. You see this sexual sin uh, creeping in and ruining his life. It says, Now Samson went to Gaza and saw a harlot there and went into her. That's never a good thing when you read that in the Bible. And so sexual sin now for the second time has uh, crept up on him and you might say owned him or had victory over him. And once more, who's the woman who Samson is famous for having relations with? Well, Delilah. Delilah comes into the picture in verse 4. After this, it came about that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. And as you know, the story goes, the Philistines are in hurrier. They get him to confess where his strength comes from. They pluck out his eyes. They cut off his hair. They chain him to two pillars in a building. They make fun of him, laugh at him. And eventually, he pulls the building down, killing himself and the others. But nonetheless, I think that Samson stands as God's example 
of sexual sin and its consequences. We learn from Samson that though God is gracious, eventually sin has consequences, and this sin in particular, if left unchecked, will ruin your life. A man who was really blameless in almost every other way was brought down by his sexual desire and longings. So tonight we're going to talk about sex. And if you are a visitor, no, you don't have to sit in the front row. And just to warn you, we don't typically talk about this, but we are working through a passage, and that's just what happened to come up tonight. So there you go. Now, if you're squirming already, uh, for those of you who have been here, you were forewarned. We've read this passage five times now after tonight, and it was on Facebook, so too bad. (laughs) Now, before we dive into this, undoubtedly, sex and sexual sin have always been a temptation for humanity, right? It's not something that's just common to today. 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us that. Just within the past 100 years, though, I want to submit to you that we live in an increasingly sexual society, perhaps maybe one of the most difficult to remain pure in uh, in the history of the world. And I found a story that illustrates this change well. It says, when Annette Kellerman stepped onto Riviere Beach in 1907 wearing a one-piece bathing suit that ended in shorts above her knees, her legs caused a scandal. Police were called, and she was arrested for indecency. Those legs had also made her famous. The Australian swimmer held all the world records for women's swimming in 1905. She was a star with an act full of high dives and underwater ballet. Newspapers hailed her as the original mermaid. But Victorian-era vacationers didn't care to feel the sea or sun on their skin. In the early 1900s, women waded into the water in black, knee-length, puffed-sleeved wool dresses worn over bloomers with long black stockings. And no, I have no idea what any of that means, but a lot of clothing. Bathing slippers and even ribboned swim caps. Kellerman, Kellerman may have been thoroughly covered, but to her fellow bathers, she may as well have been naked. Me arrested, Kellerman said in an article recalling the 1907 incident. We were all terribly shocked, especially my father, for I was his innocent, protected little girl. But the judge was quite nice and allowed me to wear the suit if I would wear a full-length cape to the water's edge. Interesting comparison to today's beach scene, isn't it? Or today's poolside scene. Friends, the world is quickly spiraling away from modesty, from purity, and I would submit to you from God. The issue is not just with grown adults, though. It's not just with those who are out on their own. It's even with the youth. Uh, It starts in high school and even earlier than that. For example, did you know that 47% of high schoolers have had sex? Further, by age 19, 70% of all teenagers have had sex. And sadly, surveys showed that 8% of guys had sex before they were 13, which means before they were teenagers. The issue of sex and sexuality is probably one of, if not the largest temptation and deterrent for growth in your spiritual life. It is, because of where we live and because of our own sinful hearts. It's at school, it's at work, it's on TV, it's on the internet, you take it with you on your phone. We are being bombarded by sex and sexuality. For example... The pornographic industry is at an unbelievable rate of growth and uh, production. 12% of all content on the internet is pornographic. $3,000 are spent on porn every second. And the porn industry made more than the MLB, the NBA, and the NFL combined. Over $100 billion a year. So I digress to say we are in a war zone, friends. We are in a battle And the question is not if you're in the battle, because you are in the battle. The question is, are you winning the battle? Are you winning the personal battle with purity when it comes to sex and sexuality? Let's turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Once again, there is nothing new under the sun, and this is a temptation that Solomon pursued. He intentionally pursued it, though it was sinful, uh, in order to derive pleasure from it. Sex was the last step that is recorded in this passage, but just for sake of, uh, really old time's sake, but just to refresh your memories, I'm going to read this entire passage once again. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 1. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure, so enjoy yourself. And behold, it too was futility. I said of laughter, it is madness, and of pleasure, what does it accomplish? I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body, 
with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their lives. I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and I had homeborn slaves. Also, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. Well, we have spent five weeks in this passage now. And you may recall, we've been looking at different avenues uh, from which Solomon is trying to derive pleasure, satisfaction, contentment, or you might even say life. First, he pursued fun. Overall, just fun. And he found that it was empty. Then he pursued substances or alcohol. And again, it too was futility. Next, he pursued uh, works, or we might say uh, acquiring stuff. He, he pursued uh, gaining things and acquiring things in his life. That didn't do it. Last week, we saw he pursued competition, or in other words, wanting to be the best at whatever he did, whether it was work or his empire or his kingdom, whatever it might be. That didn't do it either. And Now tonight, the last one we consider is sex. Solomon pursues sex as a means of pleasure. He gives us the word for it in verse 1, the word for the conclusion of this whole matter. He says, it too was futility. And remember, friends, that this is about the entirety of the experiment. All the pleasure that he sought was futility. In other words, it wasn't lasting. It was fleeting. It was temporary. It wasn't uh, satisfying. It couldn't give life. In other words, it was a terrible God. And now here at the end of verse 8, we see the last portion that he records, and he says, the pleasures of men. Now a concubine, just in case you don't know, was a woman who lived with a man, but had a lower status than a wife. And 1 Kings chapter 11 gives us a little more of a look into this, uh, in terms of Solomon's pursuit of this. 1 Kings 11 verse 3, here it says that, From the nations concerning from which the Lord said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you. This is God speaking about marrying foreign women. And then it says in verse 3, he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned his heart away. So Solomon had 300 concubines and 700 wives. In other words, 1,000 sexual partners in his life The result in that text is that they turned his heart away, and the conclusion here in Ecclesiastes 2 is that it brought no satisfaction. It did not satisfy him in the end. And friends, I think as we look at Solomon's life, if there's something in your mind that says, man, that might be kind of nice to try that out, that'd be pretty cool, then I just want to submit to you, don't forget the end of this conclusion. The reason Solomon is writing this is because it did not satisfy him. It was not a good idea. If that's where your mind's at, then I would pray that you would uh, submit your thoughts to the Word of God tonight. There's some serious rearranging of the brain and your thought patterns that needs to happen because sex and sex with multiple partners will not satisfy. It won't. Solomon did it for us. He did the experiment for us. And so, sex makes a terrible God. That's the passage, and there was really only three or four words. We explained it. We looked at it. What, What my heart is for tonight, though, is this. I want to know, how should we think about sex? How does God think about sex? In our culture, our view of sex is being shaped, is it not? Television, internet, celebrities, culture around us, how people dress, billboards. Your view of sex has been formed by something. The question is, is it biblical? And so what I want to do for the remainder of our time is basically work through five biblical propositions right out of the scriptures that I believe are going to help you form a worldview about sex and sexual conduct and sexual purity. Sound good? Here we go. Number one, I'm excited for this. God designed sex for marriage. God designed sex for marriage. Did you know that sex was actually God's idea? He designed it this way. He made the male and female parts, and furthermore, he established the covenant of marriage. 
Now, you may have grown up in an ultra-conservative home, in a maybe even potentially legalistic home, where you've just been told your whole life, no, sex is bad, sex is bad, don't even think about it, don't uh, ever do it. (laughs) And maybe for the meantime, that can be healthy. We should be setting aside thoughts that aren't helpful and that are tempting. However, I think the pendulum can swing too far, and we can forget that, friends, sex is designed by God. It's designed by God for marriage. He created sex to be enjoyed between a man and a woman who have entered into a covenant relationship with one another. And just a few passages on this. Listen as I read. Genesis chapter 2, God says, A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined with his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, this is the primary reference on this topic, meaning that it's the very first passage that speaks about marriage. And here, I believe that God displays his intent for man and woman to be one, just like he is one. In other words, I think the family structure is crucial for the rest of what God's going to do. And so he establishes, before he even establishes Israel as a community that witnesses uh, about God and his glory, before he establishes the church, and also now a community that witnesses for God's glory, God is concerned about the family. The family structure is foremost on his mind, so much so that he puts it in the second chapter of the Bible. He makes all of creation, and the very next thing is, okay, now I'm going to implement marriage. He's concerned about the family structure, and I believe, just as another side note, that marriage is a picture of the unity that we have with God. It's a picture of the relationship and the intimacy and closeness that we have with God. Therefore, he is concerned about it and establishes it early on. Likewise, Hebrews now, chapter 13, verse 4, it says this. Listen to this passage. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers God will judge. So from this passage, we see that marriage is to be set apart. It's to be honored. Why? Well, because it's from God. In other words, marriage is important to God, and I believe it teaches us about God. However, this verse also speaks specifically about the marriage bed, which is sex, and here it expresses God's disdain for sex outside of marriage. Again, this is under the first point, God designed sex for marriage. Hebrews 13.4 says, the marriage bed is to be undefiled and that fornicators... In other words, those having sex outside of marriage will be judged. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, again, you see God's uh, desire for a man and woman who are married. Here, it says, the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife. And yes, we're talking about sexual duty. Likewise, also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body. But the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Once again, Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, is specifically addressing the Corinthian church with their view of sex and sexuality. Here, uh, what I love about this is that he says, yes, this is a good thing, but notice the motive. The motive is to focus on your partner. It's to focus on serving and not on yourself. It's about loving your spouse and serving them well. And so I think as an overview from this passage, we again affirm that sex is good, that it is from God, and that it's it's God's intent that it would not be neglected in marriage. Well, one last passage, James 1.17. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. Again, this just reflects everything that we have in life that is good comes from God. It comes from God himself. And though it comes from God and it is a gift, uh, most things that are good, Satan tries to pervert, sin will inevitably pervert. And so we see in our world, is sex perverted often? Is it misused? Is it misrepresented? Yes, it is. Uh, We have uh, misrepresentations of how God has designed it all over. You don't have to look far. God's intended design for sex has been ravaged, but his intended design is for one man and one woman within the covenant of marriage. Now, in light of the setting that we live in, where 
sex outside of marriage is okay, even in the Christian church, friends. This isn't just out there. Even in some circles of religion and Christianity, sex outside of marriage is okay. Um, Homosexuality is even kind of overlooked or promoted in some Christian circles even, though it is expressly uh, spoken of as sin in the Bible. In light of this setting, I think we need a second truth to be reminded of as well. Second truth is this. Any sexual conduct outside of marriage is sin. So first is that God designed sex for marriage, but now any sexual conduct outside of marriage is sin. This would include adultery or cheating. This would include sexual conduct between a boyfriend and girlfriend. It includes sexual conduct between an engaged couple. It includes getting as close to the line as you can without actually crossing it. And I want you to turn now to Ephesians chapter 5. New Testament, Ephesians chapter 5, go eat popcorn if you're looking for an acronym to remember these epistles. And this text, I think, states it quite clearly. After First and Second Corinthians away, Ephesians five verse three. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Now this first term here, immorality, it comes from the Greek word porneia, and you guessed it. That's where we get our English term pornography. And porneia primarily speaks to sex that is not within the marriage covenant bond. This includes sex with someone who's not your spouse when you're married, or it includes sex before you're married. But the second term is even more general. In the NASB, it says impurity. And impurity is uh, anything that refers to general uncleanliness. Interestingly, in Jesus' day, the Pharisees were concerned primarily about outward cleanliness, and so they would often wash their hands and do other ceremonial cleansings. And yet Jesus calls them on the carpet in Matthew 23, verse 27, when he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. And there's the word again. And so Jesus, among other biblical figures, takes this word from Ephesians 5.3, impurity, and he takes it to refer to the purity of the heart as well. Now why is that significant? Well, we know Jesus other places says in Matthew chapter 5 that even if you look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery. And so within Ephesians 5.3, you have the physical act of immorality and also any form of impurity. So what does impurity include? Well, it includes things like fooling around with a boyfriend or girlfriend, watching or looking at pornography, masturbation, playing out a scene in your mind, looking at a man or woman in a sexual way. Again, we're talking about anything sexual that's not in the realm of marriage. So not only are we not to do all these sexual things or to think or to have them in our hearts, but look at the text again. He says immorality or impurity or any greed must not even be named among you. So uh, the Apostle Paul, again, under the inspiration of the Spirit, so it's God speaking, is setting the bar very high. He wants us to be sexually pure in our actions, in our thoughts, in our words. And to add to this conviction, we know that God knows our thoughts. He knows our hearts and that these can be enough to manifest sin as well. Now, returning again to Solomon then, can we safely say that Solomon was in sin by sleeping with several women? Absolutely. Absolutely. The precedent had already been set by God in Genesis 2. One man, one woman. Solomon was uh, inevitably, undoubtedly, I should say, in sin. And in in fact, Solomon's lust for women and sex was so strong that sadly, remember in 1 Kings 11.3, it says it drew his heart away from God. And by the end of, the li- of his life, I think he realized that he'd blown it, that it was vanity. Friends, anything that is sin will not bring you lasting joy. I've said this throughout these past five weeks. Anything that is sin will not, it cannot bring you lasting joy. Even if it's a good thing originally, like sex, it cannot bring you lasting joy when it's misused, when it's perverted, when it's used in ways that God has not ordained it to be used, or when it's just worshipped and idolized, even within marriage. 
So then, for the purpose of continuing to inform your conscience on this, uh, in case you're kind of wondering, is this the only passage, let me read you a few other passages that pertain to this topic. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 is the classic. For this is the will of God. Man, I love this passage. You want to know what the will of God is? You want to know what the will of God is for your life? What God wants you to do? Here we go. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Well, what is sanctification? Sanctification is the process of being made holy, being made set apart. If you're a believer, you've been justified. Sanctification is practically now your life catching up to that reality, catching up to the fact that you're no longer a slave to sin. So this is the will of God, your sanctification. Well, that's a pretty broad topic. What do you mean? That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passions like the Gentiles who do not know God. In other words, this passage is saying that if you're a believer, God's will is for you to be sanctified and specifically have control of your sexual life, your sexual thoughts, your sexual urges, not like those who do not know God. Just a few verses later, 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. He's called us, friends, to a higher life. Ephesians 5, 3, we looked at that. Immorality or impurity must not even be named among you. Matthew 5, 27, you've heard that it was said, this is Jesus speaking, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In other words, God is not just after your actions, but he's after your motives, your heart as well. 1 Corinthians 6, and this is the last passage, it's a little bit longer. 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 13. The body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall then I take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. A motivating passage, is it not? Friends, I don't want to communicate tonight that if you struggle with sexual sin, that you're not a believer. I'm going to leave that between you and the Lord. Uh, Many believers do struggle, but what I want to do is inform your consciences and hopefully give you some ammunition to be able to begin to win this battle. Here in this passage, we see that because Christ is risen and has a body, so too we will be risen by his power and we will have a body. Further, he argues, even here on earth, we are one with Christ. Therefore, when we become one with a, a, a partner physically, Think about the conflict and the turmoil that that puts the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of Christ who lives in us. I mean, I just think, man, that is just, it's two different natures, two different worlds. And so he says in, in closing, glorify God in your body. God cares about what you do with your body. And honestly, this is just the tip of the iceberg. We didn't even talk about Proverbs. We didn't look at many passages that speak to sexual sin in the Bible. God is very concerned. He is very much so desiring that you would be sexually pure for him. Friends, sexual conduct outside of marriage is sin, and it's a sin that will not bring you pleasure forever. And this segues to our third consideration. Sexual sin will rob your joy. It will rob your joy. Now, just the fact that it is sin should be enough motivation for us to stop. But uh, sometimes I like to have a secondary motive. I like to put a secondary motive. tool that I can battle this with or that you may be able to battle this with. And so as a secondary motive, aside from the fact that God has just said so, sexual conduct outside of marriage will rob your joy both now and in the future. Friends, believe it or not, God does want you to be happy. I promise, he does. He he doesn't want to be a cosmic killjoy. He wants you to experience the fullness of his grace, the fullness of his gifts that he has given. Therefore, it is actually in your best interest to wait until, if the Lord would will, you are married. 
And I think a, a helpful illustration is just thinking about Christmas once again. As a little kid, back to this analogy, it, you may shake the present beforehand and you may poke a hole and peek in it. You may even coax your parents into letting you open one early. But the excitement of that gift is no longer there by the time Christmas m- morning rolls around. Especially if you're a pushy kid like me and you want to open one early and then maybe two and then three. And by the time you get to Christmas, half your presents are gone. Well, I think it's a helpful analogy in thinking about your sexual life. The more you do now, the less you have then. And as an example of this, um, uh, turn to Psalm 32. Turn to Psalm chapter 32. Right in the middle of your Bible. Book of Psalms. Collection of Psalms. Again, sexual sin will rob your joy. And I think there's no greater example than the life of David. Now, the background of this psalm is that David had sinned with Bathsheba. And if you don't know the story, David goes out on his rooftop in the time when kings were supposed to be out to war. And he sees Bathsheba bathing on her roof. And he calls for her. And he's informed and he knows this is Uriah's wife. But nonetheless, he forces her to sleep with him. And this is King David, the man after God's own heart, whom God set on the throne. And lo and behold, she gets pregnant. And so to cover it up, he kills her husband, puts him on the front lines. And eventually the prophet Nathan comes to him and uh, really (laughs) brings this to him and confronts him. And David responds in Psalm 51 with a confession. But Psalm 32 is now him looking back on this whole experience. Him looking back on the process of being convicted and how he felt. And look at verse 1 in Psalm 32. He says, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Again, David had already confessed this sin. He had received forgiveness, and you too, friends, can confess your sin and receive forgiveness. And now he's expressing the blessing of having this finally off his shoulders. But I want to point out one detail here in verse 2. He says, in whose spirit there is no deceit. And isn't that true? Particularly with sexual sin, there's something about it that leads to more sin. It leads to deception. And personally, I think it's because this. And this is just an analogy. I'm not speaking literally. But I think it's because Satan takes you into the corner and he starts beating you up and pricking your conscience. Hey, you're guilty. They're not going to accept you at the church. Hey, you're guilty. God doesn't love you anymore. Hey, you're guilty. You can't come to the Bible anymore. Hey, you're doing this sexual sin. And he just sticks you in the corner. He just beats the tar out of you. And he keeps you in the corner. There's something about sexual sin that leads to then deceit. And then you begin to lie and cover it up. And you want to keep that close, just like any idol. And so David, I think, looking back, recognizes, man, there was a spirit of deceitfulness going on there. There was something going on in my heart that was not good. And yet now he's expressing the joy of having that relieved, of having that done with. And look at verse 3. He says, he's explaining this scenario. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. Here he recalls the internal turmoil that he was experiencing due to his sexual sin with Bathsheba and him covering it up. This was affecting his conscience, him mentally. This was even affecting him physically. His body was heavy with guilt. He was packing this burden around with him. And literally, the word here for body is the word bones. He's expressing that down to the deepest parts of his body, he just had this this guilt, this anguish, this burden because he was hiding this sin. The inmost part of his being, he felt conviction. And now look at verse 4. He says, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. I think here he goes now from just talking about how he felt to recognizing the source of the conviction, the source of the guilt. It wasn't because he got caught. The source of the guilt was from God himself. God was pressing heavy upon him. David knew this was sin. And as a a man after God's own heart, God then was not going to leave him alone on this. He was going to bother his conscience. He was going to pursue him and lead him out of this toward repentance. And so as God often does, he made David miserable. Friends, I got a confession to make for you. And no, it's not about sexual sin. (laughs) Um, I often pray this for even people here. I often pray this for unbelievers who are rebellious. And here's what I pray. Lord, make them miserable. 
That sounds a little messed up at first, but then I continue to pray, Lord, make them miserable if that's what it's going to take for them to repent. And does God do that sometimes? Will God bring us to a low place? Do some people have to hit rock bottom before they finally look up? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so I think that's what David is expressing here. He says, day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. Interestingly, the word for heavy here is the same word for honor or glory. It's, the, it's really the same idea of Isaiah bowing before the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6. And he says, holy, holy, holy Lord, I should be undone in your presence. He was humbled and really brought to an end of himself by the glory, the honor, the expressing glory of the Lord. And it's really the idea of the heaviness of the Lord, the weightiness, the, uh, just the depth of God that was just vast and humbling. Well, in the same way, that's the idea here is that David recognized his sin in the presence of God. God's heavy presence, his holiness, his glory was upon him. It was convicting him. And so in verse 4, part B, the second half of it, he says, my vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. As a consequence of God's convicting holy presence upon him, David now says that my vitality was drained away. That is my life juices or the inner stuff in me. My motivation, my spark in life was gone. He's describing how he felt, not just what he thought. And I think here is an attestation then to the spiritual state of running dry. Friends, this is so so relevant in our lives. In any sin, but especially in sexual sin, this will dry up your spiritual fervor so fast, won't it? It will kill your joy for the Lord. It will kill your passion to be in the Word. It will kill your passion to encourage other people. It will kill your passion to be accountable and around other believers. Again, it will take you into the corner and beat the tar out of you. David is expressing how his... uh, spiritual life was even being affected. Similarly, in Psalm 51.12, he says, Lord, in the midst of confessing, restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Well, why did he have to pray that? He had to pray it because his joy was gone. His joy was gone. Friends, maybe you've experienced this. Maybe you're in this right now. Well, you too can confess this. You too can follow David's footsteps and confessing this to the Lord, and he will restore your joy uh, where true repentance is found. And if that's where you're at tonight, then I want to encourage you too with verse 5. Verse 5 says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Notice here that this is not just David confessing and receiving judicial forgiveness, but I believe that he uses the term guilt here in an all-encompassing sense, even his inner feeling of guilt and turmoil was alleviated. It was alleviated by his confession to God. Isn't that incredible? You know that the world has no idea what to do with guilt? Modern psychology has no idea what to do with guilt. They either say blame someone or something else, Maybe it's a friend or a parent or an experience or your environment. Or, go do it more. Literally, I've heard of a Christian counselor who a woman was struggling. Uh, I think it was because she had committed a sexual sin and she was married. Or maybe it was just because she had, yeah, I think she was single, but she had had sex outside of marriage, so she was convicted. And this is a Christian counselor who attests to a psychology, a Christian psychology, and he told her, you need to go sleep with as many people as you can to numb your conscience. Unbelievable. Both of these are horrible solutions. I've been very close to people who have uh, gone with the first one where they don't take blame for their own sin. They don't know how to process guilt, so they blame someone else. And I think uh, the second example is just sad. But instead, look at God's solution to guilt. David says, I confess my sin to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Not only does God positionally and transactionally forgive you, but even subjectively in your own heart and soul, the only way to find peace and rest and restoration from guilt is to bring it to the Lord and to know that if you then confess it, he separates your sin as far as the east is from the west. That's exciting. Friends, that's exciting. We've all got red in our ledger. We've all got sin, and God forgives our guilt. 
sexual conduct and sex, sexual impurity, immorality, all these terms, they will rob your joy and they will rob your contentment. And this is just one example, I think, that demonstrates that. Now, next, coming from this, uh, in the midst of it robbing your joy and contentment, I think the question naturally is, what do we do from here? You've been convicted. You know things need to change. You know it's going to rob your joy. Maybe you've even genuinely taken this to the Lord and you've confessed it, but you don't really know what to do. Well, the fourth then proposition from Scripture regarding this is that sexual sin requires repentance. Sexual sin requires repentance, not just confession. Throughout the Scriptures, God calls us to repent from our sins. He calls believers one one time positionally to turn from sin to the living God as their Savior, as their Lord and the uh, commander of their life. But he also calls believers to continually repent of their sin. I think we saw that from David. David had already established his relationship with God, and yet there was great need for him to not only confess it, but then to repent, to turn from that sin as well. When David sinned, he confessed his sin, but his confession was not merely a lip service. And we're in Psalm 32. I want to go back now to Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is the, really the cousin of Psalm 32, and this is David's confession here. And I want to see then from David a model of how we can uh, confess and repent of sin. And specifically, this is the sexual sin that David had committed. And so this is a model of true repentance. Start in verse 1 of Psalm 51. David says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgression. Looking at this as a model for confession of our sin to God, the first point is this, it is to recognize that it is only because of God's grace that we have any right or hope for forgiveness. In other words, friends, we have no entitlement for forgiveness. David was acutely aware of what he deserved, and likewise, I think that is why in verse 1, he says, Lord, be gracious to me. You are a God of loving kindness or covenant love. You are great in your compassion, but I don't deserve this. So therefore, God, I'm asking for your grace and your mercy. Secondly, we are to ask for forgiveness for our sin against God. Emphasis on God. Look at verse 2. I'll read a few verses. He says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. The second point, then, of uh, true repentance as a model for us is that we are to ask for forgiveness for our sin against God. Look again at verse 4. Against you, you only, I have sinned. Now, the fact of the matter here, gang, is that David had sinned against Bathsheba. He had sinned against Uriah. He killed him. And yet, so insignificant was that sin compared to his sin against God that here he recognizes it's as if it were only against you, Lord. It's as if it were only against you. And so here's the principle for us is that when you sin against your friend or a boyfriend or girlfriend or your spouse or your mom or your dad, any person, understand that first and foremost, this is a sin against God. And I just got to tell you personally, guys, this has really changed my marriage and the way that I relate to my wife is that I am compelled to reconcile, to confess my sin to her, not because of my love for her first and foremost, but because I know it's sin against God and God desires me to be a different type of husband. It's sin against God and so here we go. You need to first and foremost confess your sin to God and recognize, Lord, this is sin against you. Will you forgive me? And then we are compelled to go to our neighbor to go to our friend, to go to our spouse. Verse 8. 8 through 10. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Here is the third step, I think, uh, to true repentance, true forgiveness, and it is to look forward to and ask for future change. 
In other words, it's not just confess it and go and do it again. That blatantly contradicts Romans 6.1. But it is to look forward to and to ask for future change. David is speaking now of things like joy and gladness and rejoicing. He's asking God to create in him a clean heart and a renewed spirit with the implication that this would not continue. This is a man who wants to change his ways. He's not just sorry because he got caught, but he's sorry because it's sin against God, and therefore he's confessing it and saying, Lord, help me to not do this again. Friends, this is true of any sin. Now, that's not to say that you may not stumble into it again, but true repentance does not exist where there's not a resolve to turn from that and to turn back to God in obedience. So moving now to our final proposition for tonight, as we're just thinking about sex, we're thinking about sexuality and sexual purity, we're forming a grid, I think, from the scriptures. Number five is sexual sin requires radical action. It requires radical action, maybe above and beyond other sins even. Here's why. This is a dangerous game. Uh, Sexual sin in particular is a fire that bites. It burns. If you're going to gamble with it, you will lose. And like any other sin, it is deceiving. The power and the draw of this sin in particular will whisper things in your ear like it's not that bad. Hey, you're not going all the way. It's okay. Or hey, it's only once. Or hey, you're going to marry this person anyways. And it's at that point that I think the common saying uh, needs to ring true in our ears, and it's this. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you ever thought you'd pay. So what do we do about sexual sin? We confess it, we repent from it, but friends, you've got to deal radically with it. Romans 8.12, brothers, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Romans 8.12 speaks of a wartime mentality. It speaks of a, a warrior who's battling, who's making war and putting to death sinful actions, sinful thoughts, Sinful motives. Friends, you've got to make war. I have to make war on sin. We all have to make war in this Christian life if we're going to be victorious. No one is going to win by being passive. This is an aggressive attack that we have to choose to put to death sexual sin. Romans 8.12 says your soul is on the line. I think that sexual sin pulls people away probably more than anything. It sucks you in and pulls you into the gutter, perhaps even showing that you were never truly a believer. So deal with it radically. Deal with it now. And just as a guiding passage for this, and I'm going to close with this, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus preaching once again. We've heard a lot from him because he was, he was the Lord in flesh, and he spoke directly to this. Matthew 5, 27, you've heard that it was said you should not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Jesus is advocating here that your priority for battling sin, and specifically sexual sin, should take backseat to nothing. In other words, in this day and age, your right hand and your right eye were your most valuable possessions. You used them the most. You depended on them the most, even for your livelihood, for your income, for your life. And Jesus says even they should be considered disposable for the sake of your purity. How much more a laptop? How much more a smartphone? How much more, uh, whatever it may be in your life that's causing you to stumble, should that be considered disposable? Should you be willing to cast that off for the sake of being pure? Absolutely. Look at what he says. It's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body. You fill in the blank here. It's better for you to lose your laptop, your phone, your TV, your freedom, your uh, personal time. It's better for you to lose any of that than for your whole body to go into hell. I think Jesus is making the same point that this sin will pull you away from the Lord. I've known guys who have switched from a smartphone to a dumb phone. I've known guys who have taken the hinges off their door and removed the door for accountability. 
I've known people who have taken different routes if they were tempted by a certain store where they could buy certain things. I've known people who were dating who set stricter guidelines and says, okay, we're not going to hang out alone after 10 o'clock. Okay, you know what? We're not going to hang alone at all. Okay, you know what? When you touch my arm in this way, that really causes me to go down this line. We shouldn't go. We're not going to touch anymore. Friends, let me remind you, at the end of the day, sex is a gift. It's a good thing. It's from God. Remember that. It's a blessing. But it's to be enjoyed within the confines of marriage. And so I think where we need to probe our hearts in closing tonight is how much do we love Christ? How much do we love the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? How much do we want our lives to be pleasing to him, to be obedient to him? That's where we need to begin, is where are your affections at? May the Lord increase our affections for the Savior that would lead to us living obedient lives in this area. Bow with me as we pray. Lord, I don't know where everyone's at tonight, but you do. And Lord, you know our hearts. You know our lives better than we do. You know our thoughts. And so, Lord, I pray that you would minister to each person accordingly. God, undoubtedly, there are some, many, who are here who are in this struggle right now. Lord, perhaps even enslaved to it. And I pray, Lord, that you would comfort them if they're a believer, knowing that if they confess this, you are, they are forgiven. But in the same sense, Lord, I pray that you would convict and not just convict for tonight, for a couple hours and then it's gone, but that you would really bring about life change. Lord, that they would set their hearts to uh, fight this sin radically, to deal with it, and Lord, to live a life that is pleasing to you. Lord, how much blessing there is as we rejoice with David in Psalm 32 where there's a, a, a blessing from having this weight lifted, a lack of guilt in the conscience, Lord, a freedom to live for you and to engage in Christian ministry. So, Lord, I just pray that you would make us a pure people, that we would be advocates of sex inside of marriage, and, Lord, that we would be pure in any forms of it that's perverted. God, if there's some here tonight who don't know you, we pray that uh, in the midst of talking about this really touchy topic, Lord, that you would minister to them the gospel, that they would know that Jesus has come, that he has died, that he has risen, and that he reigns on high. Lord, that he owns all of our lives, that he is the Lord. And we either recognize it now or we will recognize it later. And Lord, that you would bring them to saving faith. They would put their faith, their hope, their trust in Jesus for what he did and how he rose, Lord, and how he is victorious, that his life would count in place of theirs. We pray that you would bring them the faith, faith, Lord, and that you would remind us of the gospel as a motive to fight and defeat and crush this sin. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.